Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host for today, Shatranjay Maul. Today I'm speaking with Professor Niall Green about his new book, How Asia Found Herself, a Story of Intercultural Understanding, which was published by Yale University Press in 2023. I'm delighted to share with our listeners that How Asia Found Herself won the Bentley Prize for Best Book in World History from the World History Association. Professor Green is Professor and Ibn Khaldun Endowed Chair in World History at the University of California, Los Angeles, that is UCLA. He's a historian of the multiple globalizations of Islam and Muslims and the author of multiple books and articles. His research truly spans the the world, and having begun his research as a historian of India and Pakistan, he has subsequently traced multiple Muslim networks across the Middle East, the Indian Ocean, Africa, Japan, and even Europe and and North America. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Niall, and many congratulations for winning the Bentley Prize. Well, many thanks, Chaturanjay. That's very kind of you. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Yes, of course. Um, So our first question is always biographical. So I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a world historian with interests in the Middle East and Asia? Well, yeah, I grew up, uh, well, as one might tell from my accent, I grew up in in England and, and near the city of Birmingham. And... When I was growing up, this was an area where there were many first-generation uh, migrants from from South Asia, from India, and also Pakistan. So my interests in in South Asia, at least, I think, grew up pretty organically in that way, really, from being at school with with people, from making friends, and then by my kind of last couple of years in in high school, I had a an Indian, I guess, teacher in many ways, who I would an older gentleman who I'd go to and and ask questions really about Indian religious life, Indian philosophical traditions. Um, so that was one sort of my, my, my exposure to South Asia, at least. Uh, but my exposure to, to the Islamic world came from, I guess, a, a different part of side of my upbringing, which is, I guess, the less, uh, uh, I don't know, cosmopolitan or, or, or altogether interesting side, which was when I was growing up, the, the area north of, of Birmingham was really in many ways, let's say, you know, the Rust Belt of, of the UK in, in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and it was pretty bleak and it was post-industrial. And it was a landscape of, of factories, albeit empty and sort of uh, rusting ones. And and I simply wanted to get away to somewhere more interesting as, as far as I could. So at the age of 17, I, I got on a train which took me as far as the European Rail Network went, which was to Istanbul. Uh, and I was fortunate in having actually already studied uh, Ottoman history in, in high school at that point. I had some very good history teachers, really excellent history teachers. And um, and so I already had sort of a, a little bit of a sort of a sense of context to understand oh, what it was I was looking at, these extraordinary buildings. And still to this day, the Hagia Sophia, the Hagia Sophia, great uh, Byzantine church, come later Ottoman mosque, uh, is still my favorite building in the world. The following year, when I left high school at the age of 18, I, I, I was drawn back to, to, to Turkey, not just to Istanbul this time, but I wandered around the, 
the eastern and southeastern edges. I sort of eventually just wandered over a little bit across the border into Iran and illegally, but only by perhaps uh, 20 yards or something. And uh, But all of these sort of, uh, in a sense, kind of cultural as well as political frontier towns around the, the Syrian border down to Urfa and Mardin um, and places where in, in the geography, the sort of the, the flat uh, desert plains of northern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and in that region of southeastern Turkey, people were Arabic speakers, not Turkish speakers. Of course, there are many, many Kurds who I met. I met, made many Kurdish friends on that very influential journey as a young man. And, and I also went to this uh, monastery in, uh, in, in outside Mardin on the Syrian border where they still, still spoke Aramaic, which, of course, was the, the language of, of, of Jesus and still, to some extent, a liturgical language of uh, of Syriac Christianity to this day. And and I also <laughs> met Iranian smugglers who were sort of, you know, coming across the border from from Turkey in this very from Iran in this very sort of cheap border hotel I was staying in. I think I also actually thinking about it, I went up to the uh what was still then, the the Soviet nineteen ninety, the Soviet uh borderlands between uh, Turkey and uh and then the Soviet uh, Caucasus and went to the form the medieval Ar- Armenian capital of Ani. So that, that journey sort of really uh, changed my life. As I said, the age of 18, wandering around alone around these places just gave me a sense of not just Turkey, but all of the other, uh, I guess, kind of cultural, geographical, religious uh, communities, which were, um, yeah, which were, out there, I suppose, waiting for me as a young man, as it felt like, to sort of discover. And so in subsequent years, at the age of 19, I went to wandered around Egypt. And uh, at the age of 20, I, I finally got to India, which is the place I'd long been interested in. But by the time I got to India, having sort of my, you know, kind of approach to India being filtered through through the Middle East, through Egypt and, 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 and Turkey, uh, it was actually, to, to my surprise, it was actually sort of Islamic India that... I felt myself drawn, I guess, just in a sense by familiarity. And we'll perhaps come up, come back to that theme of familiarity, of recognition and, and difference uh, as we go on to discuss uh, how Asia found herself, because that's one of the sort of the meta themes of the book about how people understand across cultures, but also from their own cultural locations. So, yeah, so that's how things began for me. And then, you know, it's really through my... 20s and early 30s, I picked up the necessary degrees. But really, for me, that was really just, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of it really, yeah, just an excuse just to continue traveling. I, I worked as a what was called an adventure tour leader, taking people around places like Yemen and Syria and Iran quite a lot, as well as India, and more familiar places like Egypt and Morocco, back to Turkey and so on. Um, so my interest really came from... Um, Traveling through places, always overland, you know, kind of uh, whether on foot or sometimes, you know, kind of by on by camel or occasionally by by either four legged transport horse or whatever else, or otherwise by bus and train, and and really never flying. So I crossed a great many borders by land, crossed many borderlands, uh, whether from Pakistan into Iran or whatever else, um, and this really became really foundational for the way, and I understand the world as well, just by talking to ordinary people. I didn't spend my time in intellectual hothouses. I was used to try to stay away from capital cities, let alone from sort of Anglophone areas or university campuses. Um, and I just met with ordinary people. And in many ways, I guess, 
traditional people, I suppose, is what I was interested in. Even at that point, as a, as a young man, the early and then through the 90s, as the 90s went on, I realized, wow, there's this big thing called globalization going on. And I really want to uh, sort of try to trace the the, the places of, of Asia and the Middle East, the cultural practices that maybe aren't going to be there in, in 20 years. And I think in many ways, I was probably quite right in that sort of naive, uh, youthful instinct uh, in the days before cell phones and the internet and so on. At least as far as I was aware, many other people, I was a very late adopter of, uh, of these things. I still don't carry a cell phone today. So yeah, so this is how my sort of my, my interests developed. But, but also, I think my kind of, uh, I suppose, my intellectual instincts as well, my, my interest in, in geography and place, in people in situ, but also, I guess, incrementally through my own travels, my encounters, my encounters with people who wanted to meet me, people in small towns in Iran or Syria who were drawn to meet someone from, from the West, which was, of course, a, a really pretty unfamiliar thing in sort of many of these provincial towns and small towns and villages. Uh, and also, I guess, through my work as a, as a, as a tour leader. I mean, I'm only, I was only taking groups of about 12 people around these places, but I think I sort of had a probably sort of a certain, I don't know, guilt about that, but also recognition that, oh, actually, something valuable is going on here. You know, it's sort of as it's kind of cultural sort of interactions and exchanges, as I said, from both directions, from locals as well as the visitors I was bringing in. And I suppose that stuff incrementally over a period of decades through various other books and so on led me to the one we'll be talking about today. Thank you, thank you. Uh, it's it was fascinating to hear about how your childhood and then youthful sort of experiences, first in the UK and then in the Middle East and South Asia, sort of shaped uh, your intellectual journey and how that sort of led to your particular approach as a world historian. Um, so uh, now I'd like to turn to asking you about the book that we're talking about today, um, How Asia Found Herself. Um, so how do you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Well, I came to write this book really from a sort of a point of uh, a point midway through my career, I guess, or at least at the age of 40, whatever point that is, when I'd written, a, I don't know how many, half a dozen books or maybe a bit more than that, uh, half a dozen books or so on the, the bits of the world, the Islamic world that, that I sort of knew about, that I'd specialized on, that I'd you know, studied the languages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the age of 40, that, you know, having spent, as I say, you know, kind of a, a lot of time in, in many different countries of the Islamic world, probably a dozen or 20 or something different countries with majority or minority Muslim populations. At the age of 40, as I said, uh, I've mentioned this in the preface of the book, I think, uh, I decided, OK, I'm just going to treat myself. It's my 40th birthday, I'm going to go somewhere I do not know anything about, but I'm really curious about. I'll go to Japan. And, uh, and I turned up in Japan and... Uh, quite happily, you know, I found that Japan isn't a place where, you know, kind of not that many people speak English or for you know, various reasons, a very admirable cultural modesty. They don't want to show off their, their, their linguistic skills or whatever. So because of the, of course, the, the, the writing system, etc., uh, the linguistic barriers and my own sheer ignorance, I felt I was in, uh, I borrow a word for a phrase from uh, a Bengali, an Indian literary critic, Rustam Barucha, that I was in another Asia. So all of this sort of so-called expertise that I gathered as a historian of Asia sort of meant nothing to me here. I was just, you know, completely lost. And, uh, and 
completely enamored by this sort of, I suppose, return to that sort of 17, 18-year-old self that, wow, I'm starting over here. And what that began to me was a couple of things. One was um, starting off a whole new cycle of readings, beginning again and reading a lot about the history of, of East Asia, Japan, um, and, and other places as well, particularly China, where I, I subsequently traveled, and then trying to find a way to, to fit this place in my own intellectual interpretive jigsaw, which meant trying to understand if and how Japan came into contact with the other regions of Asia, which I knew something about, Islamic Asia. And so, you know, as many sort of academic holidays do turn into sort of busman's holidays, after about, you know, 10 days in Japan, I, I wrote to a, uh, a librarian, a specialist librarian, to try to get this early 20th century Urdu account of Japan that I'd come across a reference to. That was rapidly supplied, supplied, and I kind of supplied. Shout out to the librarians, of course, who who help us do what we do, enable us to do what we do. And from then on, I started writing a you know bunch of articles about you know Muslim, Urdu, Arabic, Persian accounts of Japan. And then subsequently, I've tra- travelled to sort of to China and across various bits of China, then to Myanmar, Burma, and um, and started a similar exercise. And that was sort of really kind of through a period of I guess you know bit by bit over. A, a decade traveling through the benefits of a wealthy U.S. institution, managing to go to other parts of Asia that I'd never been to before. Um, and so my travels then in these places, I'd say several trips to around China, to Xinjiang, but also to you know more obvious centers, Beijing and Hong Kong and so on, and through Malaysia, Singapore, and, and, and quite a few trips to Japan. Um, I started to yeah piece together... I suppose in the way I do work, in a sense, from the ground up, from walking history first, through looking at buildings, through looking at port cities, which were became, as a historian in particular of the 19th century, and the book really focused on 19th century globalisation, 19th century interactions across Asia, what I come to call Asia's cultural revolution in the 19th century, through steamships, through printing, um, and through translation, crucially, between Asian languages and between European and Asian languages, I started to, to um, yeah, to, to build up what becomes then this picture of not, not so much take, well, taking me out of the picture, of course, but how different Asians began to understand one another. So how Asia found itself asks, uh, in a sense, a simple question, but one is perhaps a rather more challenging to answer. And that question is, how... In the modern era, the era of 19th, 20th century globalization, how did people from different regions of Asia come to understand one another's cultures? By extension, necessarily one another's languages, writing systems, histories, religious traditions, etc. But in asking this question of what was was known, what was known, I as a historian went to ask, well, uh, how? How did this come about? What was known? What wasn't and why? So my sort of move towards writing this book really came through sort of a decade then of these, you know, travels and research trips to to other bits of Asia. When I first tried to try and understand how, as I say, kind of Muslims from South and West Asia, the Middle East and in the subcontinent tried to understand East and Southeast Asia. But then as I started work on this, I thought, what's the other side of this? How were Japanese trying to understand Indians and Middle Eastern Muslims, Iranians, Afghans or whatever? Did they, did they take an interest? Can't take for granted that everybody at all times in all cultures have interest in other cultures. Is this 
a human universal? Is this as a product of certain points and places in time? And ditto for China and, and Burma and so on. And of course, from that side, I had to start, you know, relying upon other people's scholarship, such as it existed, and uh, people who work with Japanese sources, Chinese sources, Burmese sources, who also have had an interest then in these kind of cross-cultural interasian um, um, sort of uh, dimensions of history, particularly sort of cultural, intellectual history, history of exchanges, global history, I suppose I might call it. Um, but then when there were gaps there in the secondary literature, that's when I started to turn towards simply catalogues, catalogues of printed books in whatever languages, when there were languages I couldn't read. Of course, there's an infinite number across Asia, whether Sinhala, Burmese, Japanese, Chinese, you know, kind of any number of other regional languages. I, I, I just out of my curiosity started finding catalogues from major research libraries, catalogues of particularly printed books um, that, that would give me at least a sort of a sense, a vicarious sense of, of what kind of knowledge was available to readers in the 19th and 20th century in Japanese, in Chinese, in uh, Malay or whatever other language, what knowledge was available about other regions of Asia. So at least I had some sense. And this sort of this sort of method then I start to build up. You can sort of see, I suppose, it's coming sort of, you know, biographically, the way I work. First of all, I, I never want to write about anywhere that I haven't seen on the ground. Whatever <laughs> the sort of real intellectual outcomes of that, that's something sort of is instinctive for me from my teenage years. I have to sort of tread at least the ground of places. And in the period I was looking at then, what becomes the focus on the book, the age of 19th through mid-20th century globalization, much of the places I want to look at are these port cities, these steam ports that become the places of interaction across Asia, the treaty ports of places like uh, Japan, India, Japan, like Yokohama and Kobe, um, as well as, of course, Hong Kong and, and Shanghai and other places, or indeed Rangoon, Yangon now, or Singapore. And just a couple of weeks ago, I finally made it to, to South Korea and to the port of Incheon, one of the, the globalizing treaty ports of 19th century Korea. So I was getting a sense of the geography on the ground of these places from the bottom up, of the kind of following in the footsteps of the, the Asian travelers I was looking at, going to the places that they visited and so on. And then, of course, of course then reading my, you know, the primary sources, building on, on, on that too. So this is sort of, as I say, sort of my methodology that sort of built from, from, the ground up. But I also then increasingly became aware of, of the gaps of understanding. And of course, this is perhaps a reflection on my own, you know, as a trying to say, okay, I come from a certain, you know, cultural location and so on, but but there's a certain level of which all human beings, though the certain universalities that one can reflect on, that some of my own issues are not just uniquely biographical or autobiographical and not just perhaps culturally specific. The issue of language, if one wants to have a deeper cultural understanding of any other culture, any other sophisticated high culture, which, of course, the cultures of Asia are to you know, the umpteenth degree of you know, so many ancient, rich, highly refined, literary, philosophical, religious cultures. If one wants to go beyond a certain very basic point of be able to write, say something or understand something about Japan, China, India, whatever, you're going to have to 
read and delve into their literary, cultural, written traditions, whether you're an Englishman in the 21st century, whether you're an Indian in the 19th century, or whether you're a Japanese in the early 20th century, you're going to need to read. And there are going to be barriers of writing and script unless there are translations. So this then, you know, kind of these own sort of methodological reflections of my own experience then and trying to filter out well, what's unique, what's culturally specific, what's what's perhaps more a historical phenomenon more generally then makes me recognize, okay, there are things that I should focus on. Uh, Asians learning other Asian languages, how could they do that? What enabled them to do that? Are the books, are the, are the grammar books, are the dictionaries? other places where you can go and study other languages. So I wanted to look at the infrastructures of, of language learning between different Asian languages. And for those people who didn't have the time, inclination, privilege or whatever to go full on in there, pursue their curiosity across different regions of Asia, other translations. Of course, we take for granted, you know, as English speakers, that, you know, we, we can access, you know, enormous range of other cultures and the classics, the important and the, the major and the minor works of other cultures because of translations into English. Again, we can't assume, although translation is a sort of a phenomenon of, of, of most developed literary cultures, we can't assume that the translations exist between many different languages. So I started then as well as looking at, you know, the infrastructures of language learning for individuals who want to actually learn to not just speak, but crucially to read the different language scripts and language writing systems of other Asian uh, languages, written languages. I just want to see for those who didn't, who just want to read a translation, what translations are available. So, what translations are available in Japanese about India? When was the just let's start out with basic stuff, the classics? Was the when and how and who by was the Quran translated to Chinese or Japanese? When was the Bhagavad Gita, if at all, translated into East Asian languages? classical Japanese or Chinese poetry. Again, the obvious things, when were these translated? Or maybe I'm going with a classicist sort of approach. What other texts were translated? What other cultural knowledge? So, yeah, these were the sort of things I started to piece together then to address this fundamental question I'm interested in is in how did people from different regions of Asia come to understand one another's cultures in the modern era what were the barriers and what were the enablers? What were the horizons and what were the, the limitations of this intercultural but inter-Asian understanding? Thank you. Uh, uh, that, that, that's really fascinating to hear about sort of the, the, the sort of your, your journey to writing this book and then sort of how you sort of approached um, your research questions and how you sort of began to piece together like your primary sources and so on to sort of fill up the gaps um, in, in, uh, in scholarship. Um, and I think you've already partly answered what was going to be my next question, which is about your research method. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I, as I mentioned previously, like your book is very richly researched with attention to fascinating and often rare source materials. Um, so where did you do your research and what's, what, where, where were these um, books located? Like what sorts of archives did you access? 
Yeah, well, I mean, a whole bunch of, of, of places and sort of methods that were sort of available to us, or at least were before COVID when most of the, the research was done. So partly from, you know, the, the obvious places, the um, the British Library it, it has such a huge collection of um, 19th and early 20th century books in a whole huge range of Asian languages. And it crucially also has often actually, you know, prepared in the, the sort of the great early 20th, 19th, early 20th, golden age in many ways of bibliography and well-funded librarianship, this extraordinary range of, of catalogues of, uh, you know, kind of giving, in some cases, brief descriptions of books in languages like Sinhala or Tamil printed books or, you know, whatever else. Um, and I should here sort of clarify that the, the reason I focused upon the 19th and early 20th century was this was an age of um, of what I've called of, of, of Asia's communications revolution, because this was the period in which printing spread through South Asia and the Middle East, which the Indian subcontinent, Central Asia, as well as West Asia, the Middle East, effectively, apart from a few small Christian minorities, but effectively didn't have printing until the 19th century. And even though, of course, as we know from many sort of world history introduction, that China had not only invented wooden block printing in uh, the sort of early centuries or the mid sort of centuries AD of the Common Era, but this has spread to Japan and South Korea. And South Korea in the Middle Middle Ages had invented typography even before Gutenberg. Nonetheless, in the 19th century, more modernized, more efficient, cheaper industrial printing methods actually spread to China, Japan, and Korea as well. So there was a second printing revolution in East Asia as well. So we have this age of not only a printing revolution across Asia, but also the period of the forced opening of Japanese ports, of Chinese ports, of uh, then sort of South Korean ports, and of course the linking up through colonial expansion of, uh, of a whole sort of series of other Asian ports in the, sort of the actual formal European colonies across Southeast Asia, South Asia, and so on. And of course the Ottoman Empire is still around this period, as well as the rising... Japanese Empire and the ailing Qing Empire and the newly declared in the 1890s Korean Empire as well. So this is an age of sort of many European, but also what I'm focusing on, but not separately, Asian actors as well. In this era then of, of, of an Asian communications revolution that comes through printing and publishing and the founding of new types of genre for mass readerships, vernacular publishing in newspapers and journals, which is uh, also a lot of what I look at, as well as actual the steamships and train lines between these ports and these uh, rail hubs inland that actually allow people to travel, allow different Asians to travel, to witness and experience other Asian societies, and also allow, of course, mass movements of Asians, whether as labourers, as sailors, uh, as traders, as merchants, as employees, as soldiers, which some of those people wrote books, but they also provided a readership back home, let's say, in each of these countries. So I'm sort of going about sort of somewhat long way of talking about my sources here, because what I was interested in then was trying to see, well, how does this new infrastructure then of, of an Asian communications revolution, that that's why in this period then, not only are there more experiences of Asians, of Asian people of different Asians, of other Asians, to use Baruch's phrase, 
But there also then a period in which books, start, books, magazines, journals start to be printed that focus on other regions of Asia and sometimes translation, sometimes direct first-hand accounts. And, uh, and this is what I decided to hone in on. And that was important because when I was talking about how different people of Asia understand one another, what I did want to talk about was, well, sure, from any point in, you know, from the beginning of time, more or less, more or less there have been the individuals across the Eurasian continent. There have been individuals who have turned up in other places. And, you know, no doubt there's been, you know, kind of a, even before the rise of Buddhism, there are probably, you know, an Indian, maybe someone from the, Pre the pre India, of course, from the Indus, uh, sorry, the the Indus civilization, who perhaps wandered across the Karakoram into China and learned some you know version of an ancient Chinese language on the spot. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in people who stayed at home. If you're in India, what could you learn about China? If you're one of the 99.99 percent of Chinese who stayed in China, what could you learn of, of Japan? Or of, or of India, or of the Islamic regions of Asia, etc. So I'm not interested in the few. I'm in the minority. I'm interested in the majority. And in this age of print then, but also of mass industrialized cheap print and printing in vernacular languages that ordinary people could read, one starts, you know, that's what I'm interested in. What, what you know, let's say the ordinary literate person in an inland town in China, Japan, India, the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, the late Ottoman Empire, what they could know about other regions of Asia. So this then, you know, led me to be identifying sources, whether from the British Library or then, as I say, sort of libraries, the National Diet Library, or there's a wonderful library in Kobe of actually Indian language books about Japan. Uh, sorry, uh, at, um, sorry, at the uh, Kyoto University in Kobe, there's the Kobe Mosque, which, uh, you know, kind of had a lot of fascinating materials in the the, the old Tatar mosque and school founded by uh, Turkic Tatar Muslim refugees who supported the Russian Empire but were chased out by the Bolsheviks and became refugees in Japan, Japan's first Muslim population. They actually set up a printing press. I managed to look at their materials in, uh, in Tokyo and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, and as I say, kind of travels in China, the National Archives in, in uh, of of Myanmar and various other libraries in many other places. And also uh, during COVID, as I was writing up the book, and I'm a bit of a bibliomane, there are a number of, uh, of Turkish Istanbul-based uh, antiquarian booksellers who would be sending me things that I would say, oh, can you get a hold of this or that as well? So, um, yeah, I mean, wherever I could find materials, really. And, uh, yeah, and, and ultimately, you know, what I see the, the book as is, is is at its foundation just laying out a sort of a, a a landscape of all of these books that are printed in all these other all these Asian languages, and I'm trying to sort of bring them together under sort of some of these crazy questions: what they enable people to know, but what what wasn't known as well, what were the gaps, so to speak, and why, and and from these sort of this empirical foundations, obviously these bibliographical foundations. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in a sense sort of putting stuff out there for a broader readership. But uh, because, I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that this has never been attempted before. And, but, you know, I also want to lay the foundations for other better future scholars who can say, okay, I can have a closer look at this book that Green devotes two lines to and one footnote. Let's see what's, you know, going on in there in more detail. And uh, to, you know, kind of open up a, a sphere of, 
of of inter-Asian understandings that isn't premised upon um, the ideology of what's often called pan-Asianism or Asianism, the assumption that Asia is one, coming from a famous phrase by the Japanese scholar Okokura Kakuzo in 1901. And when he visits Calcutta, he makes his famous declaration, Asia is one. And like many books on on Asia, I, I open my book with that phrase. And then I turn into a question, unity on whose terms? If Asia is one, who gets to define the terms of this oneness of this unity? Is it sort of a Japanese notion of unity in, in Okakura's terms, as indeed it was? Okakura's notion of Asia has no place for Muslims at all, even as his writing in Calcutta, which had, as it has now, a very large, a very intellectually and active Muslim population, let alone you know the Muslim population of India, which is uh, soon to be the largest of any country in the world. So, yeah. That's how my sources, again, came out of these questions and this sort of, uh, I guess, the, the way I go about looking at the world. Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, just before our interview, I was looking again over uh, your bibliography and sort of the primary sources. And I was really impressed by the by the by the long list. And I, I feel like, as you were mentioning, I think future scholars can maybe pick up threads of it. Maybe they could pick up like some of the books that you've sort of uh, analyzed or mentioned or laid out and they can sort of, you know, use it to build their own um, research projects. Um, uh, and of course, like you, 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 you just mentioned that you know the communications revolution and the greater connections between different parts of Asia sort of led to uh, people from different parts of Asia sort of beginning to know about each other. Um, and sort of, um, um, you know, it, Asia itself as a term came to have some meaning to them. Um, but at the risk of asking maybe too broad a question, um, could you tell us a little bit about the etymology of Asia um, and uh, a little more about how like people in these various countries and these various societies sort of came to think of themselves maybe as part of Asia? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let me go back to Kakuzo here, the, the, this Japanese scholar, this Anglophone uh, Japanese uh, scholar who actually, after his journey to, to Calcutta, spent much more of his career, not in other parts of Asia, but actually living in Boston, where he became a curator at the, uh, the museum, the MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts. Uh, and it's no surprise then that, that uh, Okokura then sort of says this phrase, Asia is one, using the word Asia because he actually wrote that phrase, that famous phrase, not in any Asian language, and indeed not in his own Asian language, Japanese. He wrote it in English. And it wasn't actually, as I tried to find out, well, who's reading this phrase? Is this other Asians who are you reading this phrase? Is it only Anglophone Asians? Or is it just, you know, kind of this high-minded uh, host in, at the Museum of Fine Arts and, you know, the, the Boston Brahmin, so to speak, you know, kind of in, in Boston, uh, the, the, you know, kind of... Anglo-Saxon elites of Boston in 1900, his hosts. So, and it turned out that Okokura's book was written in English, that phrase was written in English, and it was, was not translated into Japanese, let alone other Asian languages, till decades, many decades later in some cases, or indeed not at all. So to get to the heart of your question then, this made me sort of really problematize the region of Asia. If I'm writing a book about Asia's self-understanding, if I'm labelling this whole place of Asia, um, am I assuming 
that other peoples across Asia are thinking of where they live as Asia. Because, because if one sort of says, okay, all of these different cultures, they belong to one place called Asia, that sort of begs, that sort of, you know, begs the, the question, well, they're sort of already unified in some ways. They already belong to one continent, one space. So it's only a sort of, in a sense, a small intellectual leap, a sort of linguistically inspired leap to say, well, Asia is one continent, Asia is one. But then I started to wonder, well, okay, are people in different regions of inverted commas I'm doing here now, you listeners can't see, are people, you know, in scare quotes, Asia, actually thinking themselves as actually living in Asia? Because after all, hmm, that sounds like a European word. After all, I learned that word from, you know, kind of, I don't know, my first ever senses of geography. Well, as it turns out, the, the answer to that is, well, yes and no. The word Asia, the name Asia, the label, the geographical label Asia, it's a Greek word. It's a Greek feminine term, just like Europa. All of the Greek continents were feminine. They were sort of envisioned as goddesses. Africa, Asia, Europa in ancient Greek. So it's an ancient Greek geographical term. And for the ancient Greeks, it actually only referred to what we would now think of as of as Turkey, or Turkey, as we're encouraged to say nowadays, uh, which is to say what we later became known as Asia Minor, the bits to the east of the ancient Greek world. So the ancient Greek geographers, the ancient Greek geographers then invented and coined and used the word Asia just to refer to what's now Turkey or the bits of the east of the Mediterranean. Now, when Alexander the Great sort of, you know, kind of comes out of Macedonia, southeastern Europe, Europa, goes across what was thought of to the Greeks as Asia, what we now think of as Turkey, and then goes further east, he finds, wow, there's a whole lot more of this place. And he goes on further east through what we now think of as Iran, into what's now Afghanistan, maybe into the southern bits of Tajikistan, and of course, into the northern regions of India, and particularly what's Pakistan. But for the Greeks, they just say, okay, well, this is still all Asia. We just keep going and we divide it up. We call it different places, Bactria, India, of course, another Greek word, but we'll still call it Asia. And then by the 18th century, the European geography, or the, 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 sorry, the European age of discovery, the Europeans, you know, kind of discovering things that they didn't know about. Of course, other people obviously did. Um, and the expansion of European cartography in the, the Renaissance 16th is the European Renaissance, 16th and 17th century, and then the 18th century. There's this legacy of the Greek and the Roman geographers, particularly of Strabo. And this ancient term, Asia, we're just, okay, we'll just, the more we find, we'll just keep adding it on. Oh, Asia goes, this place goes on. There's a lot more of India. Oh, there's all these Southeast Asian, Southeast places beyond India. We'll just label them all India. So it's a European label, which is originally vague. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger, regardless of actually, in a sense, its internal coherence or, 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 or meaningfulness. So do Asians, do people in this place, the Europeans are called, call Asia, do they call it Asia? If so, how? Well, this is what I talk about in the book is I try to chart out first of all then, before I go into details, do Asians think of themselves of Asia? If so, how? And, and which Asians do? And is that the only term they think of as a geographical label? Well, there's two moments in the 
17th century a different the different ends of what Europeans are calling Asia that the word Asia the concept of this unified continent or this big landmass with a single name there are two moments when that begins to enter what Europeans are calling Asia one is through the Ottoman Empire then in the sort of the, the western end of Asia then let's say West Asia uh, and Ottomans in the 17th century start to uh, adopt European atlases, the European atlases then that are based upon the sort of, you know, the, the European voyages of discovery. And they take with them then this European word Asia, and they just transliterate it into Ottoman Turkish, into Arabic as Asya. So it's just written in the Arabic script Asya. At the same time, the Jesuit missionaries, particularly Matteo Ricci, are turning up in the Ming capital of, of Peking, Beijing in China, and Chinese intellectuals are really interested in the European, from the Renaissance, then the geographical knowledge, then the maps. And there's a very famous map that Ricci and his Confucianist uh, uh, friends and uh, are learning from one another in a very deep way. Ricci, of course, famously writes in Chinese, uh, as well as uh, reading Chinese, and the, the Chinese scholars learn in turn. And this sort of Chinese world map is, 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 is created too, again, taking on the term Asia. But apart from those two moments then, which are, you know, not wholly successful in distributing this idea, which, of course, is competing against a whole lot of other named concepts, not least, of course, the, the, the Chinese concept, not of China, but of, of, of Zhongwa, of the Middle Kingdom, that China is not the edge of some other continent or world or whatever, as the Middle Kingdom, as the centre of, uh, of, of its own version of world geography or Asian geography that doesn't have the term Asia in it. Um, but it's not really till the 19th century then, actually, that the term Asia and the concept of a unified continent starts to spread into other regions and languages writing systems of this place that still Europeans are calling Asia. And that's through the translation then of European maps, of European geographies, uh, and of European travel books and other texts. And because the very idea of this one sole continent, this, you know, kind of this big geography, this continent, the very idea of continents is, is something in many cases new to different notions of space and geography. Um, but also the notion of Asia is. And for that reason, then, the term Asia, the ancient Greek term, which, of course, is borrowed by many other languages. So in English, the English word Asia is a loanword from ancient Greek. Um, and then that ancient Greek loanword into English and into French and whatever else, into Russian, gets borrowed into a whole range of other languages. And for that reason, whether in Japan, Asia, whether in Bengali, Asia, whether in any number of Asian languages, the word for Asia is, depending on local phonetics, local pronunciation, it's pretty much the same word. And that's because it's a borrowed word. But because it's borrowed very late, it, in most cases, in the second half towards the, or indeed the latter part of the 19th century, it's actually being grafted on to understandings of geography, understandings of the world, cultural geography, linguistic, religious geography that have been around a lot longer, that are much more embedded linguistically, intellectually, philosophically, culturally, that it has to compete with. 
So whenever I meet nowadays, even in the 21st century, whenever I meet someone from Asia who is, you know, not effectively primarily Anglophone, I say, in the things you read in whatever language you read, how often does the word Asia or Asia or Asia, whatever it is, come up? And it's actually not altogether too much, as it seems. And, you know, in the 19th century, that was the case too. So although I kind of frame my book as how Asia found herself, taking a term from the <laughs> English educated, went to the same school as, as Winston Churchill, if I remember correctly, Harrow School, uh, Jawaharlal Lan Nehru, the first leader of independent India. And, and he has a famous speech in 1947 at this conference that he calls the Asian Relations Conference. And he uses a version of the phrase, how Asia found herself. Asia is discovering herself again. So I use this phrase to sort of, you know, kind of hold together my book. But I start off by saying, well, hey, we've got to recognize here that not all of these people that we're saying Asians thought of themselves as, as Asians, primarily, secondarily, tertiarily, or even necessarily had a concept of Asia in their minds when they went off to somewhere, you know, that we would identify as being in Asia. And indeed, I would say that uh, the term Asia itself doesn't necessarily come up in in a great many of the books they're looking at. It's not sort of a, a foregrounding that's there. What is often much more of a foregrounding is, is distinctions of local geography, distinctions of language, and indeed distinctions of religiosity uh, as well, which is something that, you know, the 19th, early 20th century was still, as it is indeed across Asia today, uh, a period of, 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 of axiomatic religiosity, which is to say people's sort of axioms were in many ways religious. And again, I, I don't think that's a sort of an orientalist assumption. That's something I get from looking at the sources. By the 1920s and 30s, there were sort of more secular visions of Asia, which is interesting. Now look at those, uh, look at those too. But but many of the things the 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 different uh, authors I was looking at, the different authors from different regions of Asia, one of the, many of the things they were concerned with were were religion, religious difference, and theological problems. If these people of Burma believe in reincarnation, what does that mean? Afghans in the early 20th century were really fascinated by Japan, as were Ottomans and Iranians. But this fascination with Japan and how Japan modernized then begged other questions. Well, these people worship an emperor as a god, apparently. This is what they're reading. Uh, I'm not sure how happy we are with that. Should we admire these people? Should we overlook that? Should we try to convert them to Islam? And the whole range of rumors in the early 20th century as well, because not all knowledge is reliable. One of the sub things I look at, the sub-theme of the book is all the, the fraudulent texts, including outright European fraudulent texts, that, which were taken, translated into other regions of Asia and taken as being reliable. They were unreliable. So there were rumors, there were frauds, you know, knowledge, uh, you know, into Asian understanding wasn't always based on, um, on reliable sources. And I look at the reasons for that too, you know, kind of if you're translating a book in the middle of Iran in 1880, how would you know this book in Russian or French? You know, you can't go online now and say, you know, kind of fraud alert or, 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 or whatever sort of, I don't know, news fact-checkered services we have now. How would you know? You wouldn't. There's not maybe that many books to that turn up on, in French in a book market in, you know, wherever it is, you know, kind of different bits of Asia that, uh, you know, or indeed books in other Asian languages. So 
yeah, Asia itself is problematic. And indeed, the books that were written about Asia, you know, so how Asia found itself is a story then of, as I say, of, of extraordinary discoveries, intercultural understanding, discoveries uh, between different Asian peoples against the odds. But it's also a story of, um, of full starts, of, uh, of, of blockages, and indeed of, uh, of, uh, of frauds, including, as I say, some kind of rather uh, notorious uh, European frauds and fabulists. Right. Uh, thank you. And that's actually a perfect segue uh, to my next question. Now, so I'd like to sequentially ask you briefly about uh, the, the different chapters of the book. Um, so in chapter one, um, returning to the theme of religion that you were talking about, uh, you examine religious polemics in the port cities along the Bay of Bengal and beyond, um, and the ways in which religious practitioners discover and engage with other religious traditions um, influence their self-presentations and their ideas about their dissemination of their own religions. Uh, so could you tell us a little more about this facet of Asian intercultural engagement and understanding? Yeah, absolutely. So, so here, I mean, it sort of goes back to my, you know, my method and way of working is really sort of trying to work with the evidence uh, and using the evidence, the sort of the, the 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 text, the sources, to challenge my own assumptions, let alone the sort of the assumptions of perhaps of the of, of other scholars or authors or ideologues or novelists or whatever who've written about you know. Asian interactions, let's say. So when I kept, one of the places I decided to focus on was the Bay of Bengal, which is to say the, the region that, that, the, that relatively, in the sort of scale of the seas and the oceans of the world, that relatively small body of water, the Bay of Bengal, which is between India, Bengal, and Burma, today's Myanmar, and which would seem to, well, depending on your sort of, you know, your, your viewpoint, separate or connect the Buddhist majority populations of, of Burma, or at least as Buddhist majority as they were in the early 19th century, and the Hindu and, and Muslim, and indeed great Christian populations of, of India and Bengal in this period. And by looking at what texts were printed there, well, the earliest texts were printed, Calcutta, um, as the capital of the East India Company before the, the British Raj in the early 19th century, Calcutta becomes the it plays a very big role in my story because it becomes the place where European and indeed American Protestant missionaries are really introducing printing into South Asia and printing in a whole range of not only sort of South Asian languages, but also in Southeast Asian languages. They're printing in Chinese as well. They're printing in Afghan languages like Pashto that had never been printed before ever, as well as all these languages, literally dozens and dozens of Asian languages, most of which have never been printed before. And what are they printing? They're printing translations of the Bible, or they're printing short pamphlets that are are criticizing local religions, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, and putting them into a dialogue. This is form of a dialogue text in which two people debate and the Christian wins out the debate over the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, the Zoroastrian, whatever it is. Now, what I sort of so these are in a sense the earliest texts that are comparing other different or connecting through comparison and through critical comparison these different regions of Asia. 
And, you know, kind of at first, you know, as a sort of, a, you know, as a liberal, as one thing, well, yeah, yeah, this is kind of Christian thing, it's a European thing, yeah. But as I started to look at more books, I realized, oh, you know what? You know, kind of then when we start to look at the earliest printed books in, well, in Ceylon, in now Sri Lanka, Christian texts are doing the same. But then you start to have these Buddhist texts that respond back, critiquing the Christians. You have Hindu texts that are doing the same and you have the Muslim texts that are doing the same, too. And then these critiques start to move around, too, not just Christian and Muslim, but building on, you know, kind of polemics that being, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years ago, there have been Sanskritic sort of Hindu, Brahminical Hindu kind of critiques of, of Buddhism. And, of course, the Buddha becomes the great sort of heretic of sort of Indian or Sanskritic Hindu tradition and so on. This is some, it's not a new genre in itself, the polemic. There are very old Christian or indeed sort of, you know, kind of Muslim polemics and Christian polemics and you know, whatever, inter-Asian polemics, et cetera, et cetera. But what's new is now these are coming to the age of print and they've been written in vernacular languages. And what I start to see then is that this starts to spread into Burma as well. So through my travels in, in Myanmar, I wanted to find a text I could read. You know, So I, I came across this 19th century, late 19th century text in Urdu by an Indian Muslim. And it's called Sayyidi Badama, A Journey Through Burma. And I think, oh, great. It's fascinating. It's going to be an Indian Muslim who's going to describe all the wonderful things he finds in Burma. But he does just do that. He describes all the wonderful things he finds in Burma. He likes the people very much. He describes all sorts of things, the natural beauty, etc. He describes learning the language from scratch, learning the written language. He's studying Pali, the classical religious language of Theravada Buddhism, but also Burmese. He transliterates titles of books from Pali and Burmese into the Arabic script of his Urdu, which I check with Burmese scholars. These are real books, key texts. He's really doing his work. But the more he learns, he has these problems of conscience, intellectual problems, theological problems that, as I've already mentioned, for example, the problem of reincarnation. This is a moral problem that he explores in detail. And ultimately then I'm finding, well, what's going on here? This is a book to, that of an Indian Muslim who, beyond anyone that I've actually learned of from his period, that I, or at least so far others have found evidence had, has really explored the culture of Burma. He's learned the ancient sort of canonical scriptural language. He's learned the modern literary language. He spent 12 years living there and really engaging with the people, having conversations with them, not staying, let's say, in an, sort of an emigre enclave, as in Rangoon, where there are huge numbers of Indian migrants in the 19th, early 20th century. So Rangoon surpassed New York by 1920s, the world's biggest port of immigration, and mostly of immigration from, from India. And he's not staying in such an enclave. And yet, this isn't a happy story of everything is the same because he, he sees Burmese people as being fully human like himself. He wants to assure their place in paradise. And for him as a believing Muslim, that uh, the, the way he can do that is by showing them the truth of Islam as he sees it. So this then sort of makes me realize and sort of, okay, the, there's actually this sort of, polemical engagement or sort of like this if you like a sort of a critical anthropology in a sense or a, a religious anthropology that's going on that isn't the the you know the the tradition of uh, no, kind of um what would one one call it sort of a well uh what call it kind of secular anthropology that we tend to think of as emerging in, in the west through franz boas and 
Columbia University that founds, in a sense, the discipline of cultural anthropology as we sort of think of it today in Europe and in the West, and indeed in many parts of Asia. This is a sort of form of anthropology of studying other cultures and other languages and other sort of life ways, but it's predicated on certain religious axioms. And as it turns out that the Burmese Buddhists start to do the same thing as well. But as I argue, sort of as a historian, I'm not just interested in saying, okay, well, that's it. People don't believe in, you know, there's, there's this critical anthropology. That, that's it. People can appreciate others cult, other people's cultures, but that's as far as they get. What I find as a historian that uh, is that among Christian scholars, which, of course, start to include many Indians and Asians as well, you know, kind of Christianity is a huge Asian religion. There are tens or probably, you know, at least I'm guessing from the top of my head now, perhaps 100 million practicing Christians across Asia today, something like that. So it is a really major Asian religion and becomes even more of a major Asian religion in this period. Many Asian Christians are writing books, including books about other reasons of Asia, some which I look at. Um, but what I realize over the over the period I'm looking at then, over a period of about a century that the book covers, is that as, as there are more of these encounters, even critical encounters, uh, or, but nonetheless, real engagements and discussions with with people who follow other religions within Asia, including Christianity, then as an Asian religion, there's actually a process that, that of greater sympathy starts to come as well. And this sort of so as I show then that from these earlier, let's say in the case of the earlier critical Muslim and in the critic, critical Christian and Muslim accounts of what we now call Buddhism. By the early 20th century, then, you start to have these Christian books by figures like the German, German and then American, German emigrated to the US, Paul Cardus, who writes a book, The Gospel of Buddha, reimagining Siddhartha Gautama the Buddha in these Christological terms. And it's actually this book, along with another book by Sir Edwin Arnold, The, uh, the Light of Asia, a long poem in English, a book-length poem about Gautama, again, in sort of a, a Christ-like, a gentle, meek Buddha. These are translated into a huge number of Asian languages. The American founder of the Theosophical Society, who himself becomes a very anti-Christian Buddhist convert, Colonel Alcott writes a book, The Buddhist Catechism, modelled on a Catholic catechism question-and-answer format, and that book is translated into around a dozen Asian languages as becoming a really major language of Asian Buddhism. So one goes from a position among Christians and then subsequently among Muslims, uh, and indeed then among Hindus as well, of Buddhism not being what I was saying before, the, the religion of idol worship, or for the sort of Hindus and Brahmins, the great schism, you know, the Buddha is the great schismatic or, you know, the great heretic. But now Buddha is, is a world religious teacher, is an Asian religious teacher, is an Indian. Afghans too. Before the blowing up of the, of the, the great Buddhas of Bamiyan by the Taliban in 2001, a moment I remember very vividly as a graduate student, which led me to sort of unearth a different story from Afghanistan too. By, the 19, by 1931, the Bamiyan Buddhas had appeared on an Afghan postage stamp because by the 1920s and 30s, there had been a whole series of Afghan accounts of, of the Buddha, but of actually claiming the Buddha, the Buddha is ours. At the same time, Indians are rediscovering the Buddha through all these sort of translations, including translations by German theologians like Paul Garris, rediscovering the Buddha. Gandhi 
writes in his own autobiography that uh, he first learned of the Buddha through the light of Asia, through Edwin Arnold and so on. So there are these real sort of many entanglements that from, if you like, polemics or at least kind of interreligious critiques, through that real engagement, understanding and sympathy emerges, but not just like that, not overnight. And it's one of the themes of my book, knowledge and the understanding, the appreciation, the sympathy that comes from it is actually a hard-one process anywhere in the world. This isn't something to say, oh, yeah, okay, we love everybody. It's meaningless. You know, but you know, the real deep understanding, understanding of differences, perhaps axiomatic differences, but on their sympathy and, 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 and that the, the comes out of that appreciation is, is hard-one. And as a historian, I'm trying to show how that comes about, by whom and which texts and uh, what kind of encounters. All right. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that, Niall. Um, and I, I, you, you mentioned um, uh, Abdul Khalik, the Indian Muslim missionary who went to Burma and his sort of his encounter uh, with a Buddhist majority society and how it's sort of that, that's what that shows about the Muslim encounter with Buddhism. Um, so that's something you cover in chapter two. Um, so in chapter three, uh, you turn your attention to the spectrum of interest about Japan uh, in the Middle East and South Asia, which, um, you know, sort of ranged widely in terms of opinion. Um, so can you tell us more about this encounter between um, Japan and, uh, and South Asia and the Middle East? Um, and sort of what were some of the major events that shaped views about Japan during that period? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So as I already mentioned, you know, kind of Japan is where the, the book started for, for me, really. And, and in many ways, a certain moment in Japanese history is when there's, let's say, an, uh, an explosion, to use what actually turns out to be kind of a, a strangely apt metaphor, an explosion in inter-Asian interest and understanding. And that uh, moment is the not just the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 5, but the, um, the Japanese defeat of Imperial Russia. Now, I haven't so far been mentioning the history of empires and colonization, uh, and that's because this is kind of, as far as I'm concerned, the obvious sort of background of the 19th and 20th century, because there are a thousand and one books and perhaps 101 very good books about sort of uh, colonialism and Asian European colonialism, et cetera, et cetera, and indeed about Japanese colonization in Asia and about the Ottoman Empire and the short-lived Korean Empire and the much longer-lived, of course, empires of, of, of China. But this is an, an age of, of empire and of various different empires. And that's sort of in the background to my story as I talk about the infrastructures of European empire especially, which inadvertently, unintentionally lay the foundations then. As I said, the steamship networks forcing open these ports, uh, these contact points, investing in railroads to maximize European trade, etc., but they end up laying the foundations for this Asian um, communications revelation, rev- revolution that enables them to understanding. And they also lay the foundation then for the rise of Japan and the expansion of Japan as a new Asian uh, imperial power and colonizing force across, of course, China, Manchuria, Taiwan, um, um, and crucially Korea, and as well as attempts to, well, actually pretty much the success by World War II of conquering the, the, what's now Indonesia, as well as what's now Myanmar, and so on from the British and the Dutch. 
And up until sort of the 1900s from West Asia, from the Middle East and from South Asia, I'm not really finding sort of, you know, kind of much of primary sources, hardly anything of interest in Japan. There are a few travelogues from the Indian side, which are based upon the um, the ways in which Indian merchants become very successful, very wealthy traders in the ports of Japan, as they also do earlier in the ports of, uh, of, uh, of China and Shanghai and Hong Kong and so on. Very wealthy Indian traders, Indian Muslim traders, Indian Hindu traders and uh, Jewish Indian traders as well, ultimately from Baghdad. Uh, but it's really the Japanese defeat of Imperial Russia flipped another way that by the early 1900s, as the word Asia started to spread, at least among Anglophone Asians and some others, like the Japanese ideologue, Okakura Kakuzo, I've mentioned, who says this phrase, Asia is one. There's this idea then of, oh, what's happened here? Oh, this isn't just Japan and the Russians. This is an Asian power defeating a European power. And this sort of this spreads across then this new print sphere of Asia. The news spreads really widely in newspapers in the late Ottoman Empire, Iranian newspapers, of course, in Indian newspapers, etc., etc. And this provokes then an attempt by various people in particularly in regions that hadn't been colonized by Europe, such as Iran, Afghanistan, the late Ottoman Empire. Um, as well as in parts of Europe that had, parts of Asia that had been colonized. India, the Dutch East Indies, what's now Indonesia, is interesting. Well, how did Japan do this? How did Japan manage to modernize so quickly and, and, and create such a, a military force that it was able to uh, conquer the, the Russian Empire, which up to this point has sort of seemed unstoppable in its march east, conquering, of course, you know, now we think of Many of us, I think, rightly think of, of, of the Russian Empire and today's Russia as being a Eurasian state, which it indeed was because it had conquered sort of so many regions of former Asian powers that have long been forgotten about. The Tatar and the, the Tatar Mongol Harnets, of course, of what's now thought of as southern Russia and Ukraine, as well as various sort of other Buryat sort of small states and so on, a place places in now Mongolia and Siberia. So this is really interesting. But but how then, when there's this sudden flash of interest in, let's say, in Istanbul or in Tehran or in parts of India in 1905, the Japanese conquest, they will know how Japan did it. Well, how do you do that? Because at this point, there hasn't been enough interest. There hasn't been an interest. People don't know Japanese. There aren't sort of Indians that I'm aware of that, that have learned to read Japanese. The Indians in the treaty ports there might be some Indian merchants in Japan who maybe learn to read Japanese, but they're not the kind of people that are writing books for a living or they're not sort of ideologues that are, you know, writing books, etc. So what we actually get then is this sort of great growth of books about Japan in various languages, Indian languages, Central Asian languages, West Asian, Middle Eastern languages, Malay as well, etc., etc. But they're sort of largely of two kinds. They're direct accounts by people who decide, all right, I'm going to go to Japan and see for myself what's going on there. But those people, even though they travel to Japan, like me, they spend a number of weeks there, they spend a number of months there. But it's not sufficient to learn Japanese, to speak Japanese, to get reliable sort of speak spoken information or to read Japanese, which is, okay, let me look through your, you know, I don't know, your, your, your own histories or your own sort of, military reports to know how you've got about, you know, managed to achieve this, et cetera, et cetera. So they're sort of on the ground accounts, but they have limited information 
or there are other texts, including what you know, one text I look at, which in six volumes, which is an interesting case of inter-Asian understanding, which is actually a, a um, uh, an Afghan six-volume, sorry, five-volume book printed in Kabul. To that point, it's the longest book ever prob- published in Afghanistan. It gives you a sense of the fascination with Japan. It's a translation of an Ottoman account of Japan, of a couple of Ottoman uh, senior military officials had gone to observe the war in Japan. So this is sort of very militaristic sort of account of Japan that doesn't really have any sort of much of a sense of the religion or the culture or whatever else. But the texts of those people from other regions of Asia that do want to say, well, maybe there's a cultural dimension here. Maybe there's a historical dimension. And of course, these aren't things if you're just wandering to another country, you can't immediately just absorb its history if you don't know its language or writing or whatever. You can't really you know, absorb its philosophical systems. Uh, so these then, uh, such texts, then the other sort of sort of texts on Japan that are written are translations from Russian, from French, from English. And because of the history of European colonial expansion, the history of the Jesuit missions, not least of religious uh, engagement across uh, Japan from the 17th century, not least with the, the Jesuits, the Catholics, there's been this sort of longer tradition of language learning, of translation, of, uh, of data gathering for Europe's own religious uh, and political and uh, commercial designs. And one of the things that this sets a pattern then, which I explore throughout the book, uh, of what I call using a sort of a concept taken from professional translators and interpreters at the United Nations and elsewhere today, which is a term called the pivot language. And that's when you know, if, if, I, if, if I or anybody doesn't know, let's say in this case, let's say, you know, a, a, an Indian person doesn't know about, doesn't know the Japanese language or vice versa, what's the best next best way to find out about Japan? Well, you read something about Japan in a language you can read. And that language might be English or French or Russian, et cetera, et cetera. It's called a pivot language. It's a very sort of, you know, can happen across various reasons of any region of the world. It's sort of a widespread sort of a interpretive technique when there aren't either any or enough speakers or readers crucially with these different scripts writing systems in another language so this becomes you know quite a widespread pattern then of what i ultimately sort of show as the book goes on that we're not looking here just at a an inter-asian understanding but this is actually a bigger process than of of inter-eurasian understanding that ultimately goes back to to the uh, to the 17th century. I mean, one of the texts I look at is actually a uh, a translation or of the publication in Persian. Uh, there's actually a book published in Bombay by an exiled Iranian publisher, where there are many exiled sort of Iranians in the 19th century, uh, and he prints a book on China that he says is written in English, uh, but it actually turns out to have been written. Well, it's actually written in Venetian dialect, then translated into Latin and published in Augsburg in, uh, in, in, in uh, Germany in the, in the about 16, 1630. And it's translated into Persian in about 1660, sits in manuscript for um, whatever it is, 250 years or so. And then it's finally published, this Persian translation of Matteo Ricci's The Jesuits' Account of China is finally finds its way into public knowledge 250 years after it's written. So these very kind of circuitous, sometimes indirect routes, 
sometimes reliable, sometimes not. Because after all, by the time it's printed, Matteo Ricci's book is 250 years out of date. <laughs> not only is the Ming Empire long gone, the Qing Empire is, you know, shortly to collapse as well. But, you know, this is what I'm recognizing. These are the the, the constraints uh, of inter-Asian understanding uh, as well as the sort of the moments of breakthrough. Right. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so um, you mentioned about some of the travelogues and some of the accounts of Indians and people maybe from the Middle East who went to uh, Japan. So in Chapter 4, you focus on one such account, which is by an Indian uh, named Muhammad Fazli, uh, who traveled to Japan to teach at the Tokyo Gai, Gaikokugo Gakko, that is a school of foreign languages in Tokyo. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about him and his uh, book and his experiences? And what does um, what, what can we sort of and, um, find out about the encounter between um, uh, Indians and Muslims on the one hand with Japan uh, in the interwar period from his account? Right. So, so this was... This Badruddin Fazli or Muhammad Badruddin Fazli, this is a, a figure that, okay, he's one of my most you know, f- uh, fascinating informants, precisely because he is a, an, an educated, literate, uh, an Indian scholar. He studied at, at, at uh, Aligarh Muslim University, the, the, the Muslim Oxford, as it was designed to be in the 19th century. And crucially, he goes to Japan to teach the Japanese uh, Persian, and Urdu at, as you mentioned, the Tokyo Gaku Gogaku, the Tokyo School of Foreign Languages. So it's like, wow, here we are. Now, finally, this is someone who is really involved on the spot with not just inter-Asian exchange at some vaguer level, but of, of, of sharing different Asian languages and teaching Japanese to read and write in Urdu and Persian. Urdu then, in a sense, the lingua franca of, of colonial India in many ways at this point. Uh, and then Persian, a language that's still read in India, but certainly is the still the written language of, uh, of Iran and Afghanistan in, in this period as it is today. Um, and yet, as I worked more on, not just on Fazli's account, but when I went to, uh, to made another trip to Japan and in this wonderful library at the University of Kyoto, a library of, uh, of of Urdu books, as well as actually kind of corresponding sort of Japanese books about uh, India and so on, I actually realized, ah, okay, this isn't an equal exchange. Japan is its own imperial force at this point. It's founded the Tokyo School of Foreign Languages precisely as a sort of linguistic, as an intellectual aid to Japanese commercial and then by the time Fazli's there in the 1930s, very much uh, sort of to help Japanese political and military expansion uh, across Asia. And so not only are Fazli's Japanese employees not interested in helping him correspondingly learn to read, let alone or read or speak Japanese, he's actually forbidden by his terms of, uh, terms of employment to try to speak Japanese with either his employer, uh, a, a Japanese scholar, Professor Gamo, or indeed to try to speak Japanese with his the students as well. And from his own book, his book is two parts. One is sort of an account of Japanese history, literature, arts, religion, uh, economy, all sorts of stuff, everything you would only need to know, you know. And the other vol- volume, it's the longest book I could find written about Japan in any Indian language, 
and incredibly did. And the other book is his own, let's say, published diaries, travelogue. And there he describes his social encounters and the people he manages to hang out with. Not uncommon, I guess, to many sort of overseas visitors to Japan, even in the present day, and not Japanese people and in their own houses, etc., but other foreigners. The Malay teacher, a Muslim from, from Malaysia, the Tatar Muslims who... Uh, who by this point have their own mosque and printing press in Tatar in, in Tokyo, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what we find here then, one of the things I explore here is the unequal sort of exchange of knowledge and understanding between different regions of Asia and the, let's say, the political and, and economic and, uh, let's say, institutional reasons for that. Japan as an empire in its own right is... You know, found its own language school. Uh, India doesn't have, uh, you know, anything corresponding, you know, to that. Of course, there are Indian scholars that do uh, try to learn Japanese, and then we we'll try to explore the founding attempts by uh, Rabindranath Tagore, who travelled to Japan. Famously, he did. He made his own turn against Japan, Japan's militarism. He travelled in China. His poetry had been translated into Chinese and Japanese, albeit from English as a pivot language. Um, and but Tagore nonetheless tries to uh, establish like Japanese language teaching at his own university in Bengal at Shantaniketan and explore the challenges of doing that too. As it turns out, the Japanese language teacher he employs gets poached <laughs> by the uh, the Raja of Mysore, a sort of Indian independent quasi independent prince's state, to be a, a military advisor. You know that's the reputation the Japanese have got. Yeah, don't be a language teacher. Come down here. I'll pay you more to be a military, uh, a, 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 a military modernization advisor. So, yeah, that sort of, uh, you know, despite the best Indian efforts and Ottoman efforts as well, late Ottoman efforts to, to teach Japanese, the Japanese, as a colonial power in their own right, managed to, uh, you know, kind of have this, uh, yeah, there's an unequal exchange. They employ Indians to teach them, but but, you know, it's, it's a sort of one-way linguistic process, at least, at least here as I've managed to map out. Subsequently then, but what one does have from that then, this is really fascinating for me, I managed to find texts written in Japanese, sorry, texts written in Urdu by Japanese, by the students and the, the professor, the, the professor of Hindustan, as it was known then, of Urdu, who employed Fasli. So, um, yeah, but I wasn't managing to find... Perhaps other scholars will. I'd be very excited, at least from this early period, of texts written in Japanese by by Indian scholars. I hope they're out there. I'd love to learn about them. So, uh, you know, <laughs> if anyone finds them, please contact me. Thank you. Um, so, um, in the in the final two chapters, it is chapters five and six. You discuss um, China, um, and you and and if, for example, in chapter five, uh, you talk about like uh, texts that were written in various Indian and uh, Middle Eastern languages um, about China and sort of the interaction um, at that period. And then uh, in chap in, in chapter six, uh, which is the final chapter before the conclusion, you talk about um, how the presence of Buddhism and Islam in China. China formed the basis for a variety of engagements um, of Southern and Western Asians uh, with China in the early 20th century. So could you address, um, um, you know, China and sort of the ways in which that sort of figured um, uh, in the imaginations of these um, Middle Easterners and South Asians during this period? So China was in many ways, let's say, you know, the great uh, challenge of inter-Asian understanding in this period and 
the, the period I'm looking at the, in the modern age, certainly in earlier periods as well, and uh, perhaps to, to various extents today as well. And the reason that it's such a challenge are uh, uh, several fold. One, the sheer geographical size of China, put together with two constraints on that, of let's say constraints on first-hand sources of data gathering. You know, let's say, okay, you're a United Century Indian or Ottoman or whatever it is, or uh, and you want to find out about China, just go there. Okay, well, there's a difficulty with that. Is because one hand... It's actually legally very difficult to enter inland China away from the treaty ports. You know, there, there are also legal constraints from the Qing government to 1912, after 1912 to some extent from the Republican government. Then there's the civil wars that break out. So there's the dangers. And on the other hand, how would you do that? You know, unless you're a sort of really well-equipped expedition leader, um, and there are such, there's count... Otani Kozui, a sort of a Japanese uh, head of a Buddhist monastery who leads a series of expeditions to the Chinese Silk Road, uh, sort of following and competing with the likes of Oral Stein and, and Albert von der Kock, the German and Anglo-Hungarian explorers of the Silk Road. So it's kind of not impossible, but it's hard because apart from a few railroads built by the Russians and the Germans and the ailing Qing government. You can get from the tr- some of the treaty ports or from the, the Russian sort of, you know, kind of uh, Vladivostok and whatnot down into a little bit of eastern China, but you can't travel inland unless you've got, you know, an expedition or you're really going to do this, and even if you've got the permits. So, so even first-hand accounts of China tend to be of the treaty ports or most typically of, of uh, the, the ports that are being opened, forcibly opened by the European powers, Britain and then Russia and Germany and so on, uh, and especially Hong Kong. So, you know, these aren't typical of, of China, you know, and they're also the eastern edge. So that's what can be visited directly. The other challenge of China is the fact that China has a really hugely long, uh, sophisticated and philosophically varied written tradition. So if you want to understand China, well... There's a lot of work that's got to be done there. There's a lot of reading. There's, you know, kind of, what, two and a half thousand years at least of kind of, of sort of continuous sort of written tradition. You've got the Confucianist canon. You've got Chinese Buddhism. You've got obviously Taoism. You've got the huge range of literature by the early 20th century. You've got obviously Chinese novels, newspapers, Chinese Christian texts from the 1600s onwards. He's got this, you know, political writings of various kinds and philosophical schools, economic. Where would you begin? Especially if there's not even a dictionary in your language of basic Chinese characters, let alone the thousands of characters you need, obviously, to understand these, these texts. So China is this big, big challenge for these practical reasons, as well as these sort of intellectual and linguistic and sort of uh, writerly, sort of script-based reasons. But nonetheless, there's a sort of interest. And yet there's not, because of this, of course, in this period, the period I'm looking at, sort of, you know, 1840 to 1940, thereabouts, it's Japan that's the rising power. It's Japan that's the success story. It's Japan that other Asian countries want to emulate and are interested in. You know, interest in no period of history is, is, is indiscriminate. People are drawn to certain things because while Japan's in the news, people take an interest in Japan. It's the success story. China isn't. China is increasing the story of, of 
a failure as the Chinese reformers of, of, of course, the Republicans and then the communists themselves know full well. So there's actually a corresponding, I think, a sort of a less of interest in other regions of Asia in China compared to Japan that's coupled also with these challenges. But nonetheless, they become then through what I call throughout the book, I had this theme of the, the interplay between projection of the self and appreciation of the other. And this comes to what you raised then of, uh, of Buddhism and, and Islam as being means that by which non-Chinese Asians, people from India, people from, uh, from Afghanistan, people from the, from the Middle East, uh, come to take an interest in China and correspondingly, people within China take an interest in, in South Asia and other regions of Asia and in the Middle East. And that's through the lenses then or the, or the linkages of thinking, oh, well, Buddhism, that comes from India and that comes into China. And Islam, that comes from the Middle East into China. So from this way, one gets these different ways in which Indian scholars in particular who rediscover Buddhism, which has disappeared in, in India in the Middle Ages, um, and it's sort of rediscovered in this period. And one of the, the chapters in my book is called, I think, called The Indian Rediscovery of Buddhism. We're taking for granted now Indians know all about Buddhism. <laughs> you go to sort of 1850 and you try to find a book in Indian language about Buddhism and uh, you'll find that maybe that's not the case, unless perhaps of some, you know, kind of Sanskritic Brahminical critiques of, of uh, the great heretic, Gautama. So, so... In various Indian scholars then take an interest in, in China as having been the recipient of, of Buddhism from India. So it's this view of China then, this China that's ailing in the late 19th, early 20th century, and this ailing China, but its golden age, as seen from India, is when it receives Buddhism. And yet Chinese reformists in this period, Chinese intellectuals, Chinese philosophers, such as the great Hu Xi, Husha writes uh, a famous essay, uh, which is called uh, The Indianization of China. And Husha argues, actually, despite what, what uh, these Indian sort of Buddhophiles are writing now, it's actually when Buddhism comes to China that we have the great decline of Chinese philosophy, Chinese science, Chinese ethics, Chinese social life, etc., because Buddhism brought down brought down the Confucianist system, which had prevailed before. And of course, this isn't unique. I mean, remember that in, in, in Korea, that, that the Joseon Neo-Confucianist dynasty that ruled Korea for 550 years or thereabouts had actually banned Buddhism from the, the capital, Seoul, and banished it to the mountains. So, you know, this critique of Buddhism is a, you know, it's a very Asian thing, even among countries that themselves have been formerly Buddhist, such as Seoul or indeed China. So, so there's this sort of complexity then between, you know, kind of uh, between Chinese and, and Indian views of Buddhism and, and what that means for Indo-Chinese relations. And as regards Islam, well, the various Middle Eastern and Indian Muslims who take an interest in China in this period, when they learn uh, in some ways from European missionaries, uh, as well as from a few uh, Chinese travelers as well, Chinese Muslim travelers who start to move out of China on through the same ports, through the same steamships. They've been reading magazines translated from, from Arabic, new Arabic magazines that have been tr 
printed in ports across the Middle East, such as Alexandria, well, technically in Africa, but I suppose in the Middle East, um, and and, and being translated into Chinese in Shanghai, for example. And the, the Chinese Muslims are learning about Islam in the Middle East and new movements, religious movements, etc. So there's here too, and this isn't an interest in, so this is a sort of a partial interest as well. People's interests are partial. We're all sort of human beings, you know, kind of our interests are sort of infinite or of infinite sympathy or infinite understanding or infinite curiosity. How could that be? You know, we could do our day jobs, could we? Even those of us who are paid to research. So, um, so, and the story that I, I map out there is actually a story of, uh, of not the, the better known nowadays Uyghur, the Turkic Muslims of Western China, but actually the Hui Muslims, the Chinese speaking uh, Muslims uh, of China, the Hui or Hui Hui, as they're often known in, in Chinese itself, uh, and how these Muslim Chinese speaking and Chinese reading and writing Chinese start to learn Arabic and start to learn Urdu as they travel across other regions of Asia. And one of the great heroes of my book, really, is a Chinese Muslim called uh, Hei Yang, or as he was known in, in Arabic and in Persian, Badr-Din Chini in Persian, or Badr-Din Sini in Arabic, which translates, it's rather poetic, it's rather beautiful, translates as, as the, the crescent moon of the faith from China, or the Chinese crescent of the Muslim faith, the crescent moon of the Muslim faith. And Badr-Din Sini of all the people, of all the many, many unknown, largely unknown and forgotten figures I uh, talk about in my book, and I dedicate my book to the, to the what do you call it? I forget what the exact phrase, but to these sort of, you know, these forgotten Asian uh, uh, intercultural interpreters. Um, of all the figures I look at, you know, uh, Hei Wiliang is really the most striking because he's literate in Chinese, which is a challenge even for Chinese themselves, as people know in that early 20th century period, or well, by the mid 20th century, the reform of the Chinese writing system to make it easier for Chinese people to learn. He, he, he reads Chinese, he travels to India, and not only learns Urdu, he learns Urdu to such a degree he writes a book, a whole book about the Muslims of China in the Urdu language. And we know he writes himself because there's a preface by his Urdu language teacher say, you know what, he really wrote this himself, I, I promise you. And then he goes on to Egypt. And he writes, learns Arabic to such a degree that he writes another entire book in Arabic about the Muslims of China as well. He later learns Persian and becomes the uh, the uh, Republican Chinese as a representative to the government of, of Iran during World War II as well. There's another of these Chinese Muslims that actually translates from Chinese, translates uh, the Analects of Confucius into Arabic and is published in Cairo. Uh, in the late 1930s as well. So it's actually these, you know, these, this one of Chinese smallest minorities, but actually a minority that, would, that develops these connections across other regions of Asia, ultimately, I guess, ultimately to Africa, in fact, to, uh, to, to Egypt, that, uh, that really master not just other languages, but the other writing systems of other regions of Asia as well, and become really the most kind of successful intercultural, inter-Asian interpreters uh, whom I look at. So, yeah, I like to think that my book, it was for me in, in researching it, it was full of surprises. And, uh, yeah, I hope for readers too, it would be full of many such uh, surprising twists and turns. 
All right, thank you. Um, so in the conclusion, you ponder on the challenges and achievements of the inter-Asian cultural understanding that you discussed in the book. Um, so I think you've, you've already sort of already touched upon this a little bit. What, what, it, to, to conclude, what were, what, what were some of the legacies and impacts of the interconnections that you unraveled in this book? Well, I think the legacies are that when we go across Asia today, whether West Asia, the Middle East, South Asia, China, whatever else, you know, one of the things I, I always do, I'm sort of like I've, I mentioned, I'm a bibliomane. I'm sort of mad about books, you know, kind of I go into a bookshop anyway, regardless of whether I can read what might be in there. Who knows? Maybe I can or I can get someone to explain to me what's there. And, you know, I was always struck. I used to spend travel quite a bit to Iran, let's say, in the, in the 1990s and, you know, like, can read Persian. I'll go into bookshops there, and I'd find books about yoga, books about Buddhism, and sure, take that for granted. You know, if one you know goes into you know bookshops in probably most regions of Asia today, one's going to find books about other regions of Asia, and one might, I think, you know, kind of take that for granted. Well, well, sure, that's obvious. That was always the case. And one of the things then that the conclusions I come to is, is actually that what we take for granted now. That sure, Indians know about Buddhism, obviously, you know, kind of, uh, this stuff is actually pretty, pretty new. Uh, and still today, actually, when you look at actually the books that are translated, they, you know, they might not necessarily be into Asian books as well. They might have come through pivot languages via Europe or somewhere else. So what I, I guess my conclusions in many ways are, on the one hand, that the challenges of inter-Asian understanding. And the false premise that, well, this, this continent is all one. So sure, people understand within there. Many languages of Asia are more related to European languages than they are to other Asian languages. Many South Asian languages are, and Middle Eastern languages are Indo-European languages, which are much more related to English than they are to Chinese or Japanese, for example. And correspondingly easier to learn grammatically and, and being alphabet-based, etc., etc., so one of the findings I have then is the, the challenges of inter-Asian understanding, which is, you know, still in many cases, the, 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 a long-term issue, particularly now in the 21st century, the 2020s, as, as, as let's say, the possibilities of movement are, uh, are not perhaps what they were in the age of imperial globalization or the age more recently of, let's say, neoliberal globalization as well. And I suppose the legacy of the period I looked at today, though nonetheless, is that uh, a certain amount of continuity of knowledge and understanding, but that hasn't come from ancient times, but is actually the product of much more recent history and much more perhaps surprising and circuitous routes of knowledge and travels of books and translations than, uh, than we might think with our ordinary assumptions that, you know, sure, different people across Asia somehow naturally understand one another. And ultimately what I kind of conclude with is, is I hope something hopeful um, or at least positive, which is that however kind of partial mistaken it may be, the search to understand another culture is always valuable and it's valuable and worth appreciating simply because to understand another culture as I know all too well myself from my own many failings <laughs> in those endeavors is challenging and it's precisely because of those challenges not least for the many Asian 
into cultural explorers to whom I dedicate the book is precisely because of those challenges that we should value these endeavours, however partial in various senses of the word they may be. Thank you, Niall, for taking so much time out of your busy schedule to talk with me today. Um, So before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now and what's next for you? Well, I'm writing, uh, I'm just finishing off a book which is called uh, Empire's Son, Empire's Orphan, The Fantastical Lives of Iqbal and Idris Shah. And this is a story of two somewhat forgotten, but actually in their own times across the 20th century, a very influential father and son who explained Afghanistan to uh, to the to the wider world or at least to the to the English speaking world uh, despite the fact that it's not clear if either of them ever set foot in that country that's fascinating. I hope our listeners uh, will also will look forward to uh, reading your next book when it is out. Uh, and I hope our listeners also uh, uh, read or purchase, maybe they can access it in the library or maybe they can purchase uh, the book that we talked about today. Um, so this was an interview with Professor Niall Green about his new book, How Asia Found Herself, A Story of Intercultural Understanding, which was published by Yale University Press in 2023. Uh, so thank you, Niall. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Shatran Jay. Thank you so much for all of your, your questions, your reading the book. And, and those of you who are still listening, thank you for bearing with, uh, with me this far. I hope you, uh, I hope you enjoy reading the book.